Welcome to Technology Tangents. We get leaders together to discuss the important tech of today and the implications for tomorrow. Our discussions are fun, lighthearted, and well, frankly, opinionated. But hopefully it gives you a sense of what matters, what to pay attention to, what to ignore. This is your host, Vincent Yates. Joining me as always is our co-host and chief technology officer, Jason Goff. Welcome, Jason. Hey, Vincent. So today we're going to do a little topical things. There are really three topics uh, we're going to get into. The first one has been all over the news, all over your social feeds, no doubt. Everybody has been using this and it's kind of blowing up at the moment with cool use cases. Peak hype cycle is my argument, but it's called Chat GPT. So for those of you who don't know, we did a previous podcast on these large language models. These are the things that are built off basically the corpus of the internet. Machine learning comes along and learns what it means, how to talk like uh, the internet talks effectively. And for the first time, OpenAI, who's a big research group, of course, has released a very user-friendly uh, interface to actually interact with one of these large language models. And this one in particular is called ChatGPT. And it's been blowing up because, well, like I said, people can actually use it this time. Have you seen something about this, Jason? I have. I've looked at it a little bit and tried some example queries. <laughs> yeah, so the way it works, if you haven't used it, by the way, you should check it out. It's actually quite interesting. Uh, you can just go to OpenAI's website and you can check it out if you haven't yet. Um, it's free, so that's that's not the big compelling part. It's free, it's easy to use, and you can just ask it whatever questions you want. It's It's designed to be a chat agent of the future in some sense. It's really early, it's early days. But some, some really cool examples have already started coming out of it. You've seen people write basically movie scripts off of it. So we'll do movie scripts. We could do podcasts. In fact, we asked it to write a little podcast intro about what it is, what it is, what it is, what it means. I won't read the whole thing to you, but it was it was pretty good, I'd say, and give me a couple different variants of that. What I want to do today is talk about how will this actually impact businesses tomorrow. Like if you're a leader in an organization today, how does this impact you? Is this a novelty? There's something you're supposed to do with it. And that's really what I want to talk about today. Seem reasonable? It does. So one thing, you know, the most obvious case I think people would go to is like, well, hey, this is a chatbot. Isn't it just like, you know, a customer service chatbot? Is this like the next generation or next iteration of that chatbot? And I think my answer is no, <laughs> it's actually not. And, and we can end why, but you give me a look. So let me pause. Do you disagree? You agree? No, I, I 100% agree because it's, you know, when we talked before, we talked about like how some of these things may be very useful if we can limit and be in a very narrow domain. Mm -hmm. Well, this one is trained on the whole of the internet, but you know, when you do a chat bot for, let's say you're an airline and you put up the chat bot, I mean, you're, you can ask questions like, well, what time does this flight come in? I'm sure that it would be excellent at doing that. But if it was, how much will it cost to change my flight? Like that's not something that is available on the internet. That's a, well, I've got to go, reprice a ticket through some pricing system. And, and that's what a lot of those chat solutions uh, for customer service do is they, they answer very business specific, domain specific, company specific answers to questions about interacting with their products. And that stuff may not be available as training material on the internet. Can I return this thing I bought? No. Well, I don't know. Can you? <laughs> and I think that's a big, that's a big part of it is exactly what you said. Like, in essence, everybody gets the same answer. So if you ask it a question, it will always give you the same answer, which again is this deterministic nature of machine learning, and that's good generically. And you can randomize it to some degree, but that, that is the goal here. That's how it works. The challenge is, is every company's answer going to be the same? 
And, and that's clearly no. I mean, you know, this is how a lot of organizations really differentiate themselves is the way they choose to respond to this. Um, Zappos, of course, is a favorite, famous example here. So is Nordstrom. You know, is the, the, the anecdote that somebody returned a lawnmower to Nordstrom and they accepted it. They right. refunded the money in full because that was sort of their motto is like, we're going to go above and beyond and just whatever the customer wants, we'll do. So, so like that's tricky. And she'd so say, well, isn't there a way we could retrain the model for our case specifically? And that falls in a domain of machine learning called transfer learning, where you sort of lop off the answers directly. You take this model that's really big, already trained, you know, it's very, very big. These models are huge, by the way, you know, like billions of parameters. You chop off just the final answer and you retrain it on some data and say, well, let me just go modify it. The challenge with the way these models, these large language models work today, is they're an out-of-the-box solution. They're an API. It's a bit like a piece of packaged software where I can't go modify Word to have two extra features that I want. You get Word the way it is, and everybody's going to get the same thing because that's easier from a software development standpoint. And so so that's going to be really tricky. And if that's the case, then then I can't imagine how, in the current in the current model at least, how organizations would really leverage it for those internal, you know, customer-oriented use cases. However, I do think that there are use cases that are similar that will be actually quite effective. So for example, somebody on Twitter posted uh, an example where they asked it to write a letter to the insurance company requesting that some procedure they have be covered because of some specific reasons. And they wanted it to make references to supporting scientific literature and the tone to be polite but assertive. And this thing actually spit out a pretty great answer. You know, there were a couple of places where it said, you know, insert, you know, patient name here effectively and sign your name here. But the answer was really good. And we saw some great examples, you know, previously with uh, law robots where they'll sort of contest parking tickets for you in the same way. So I think that from that standpoint, it's a natural iteration of some of these, hey, I want to cancel my policy or I want to debate this thing or litigate this thing. I think the bots will be really good in that in those contexts. Yeah, I think search is another one. That's if, right. If we think about, you know, what we tend to type in search boxes these days are questions, yeah. right? Like what's the weather going to be tomorrow? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's exactly right. So the, so the first case of the bot thing, I think it is fairly incremental. I don't think it's that new. Where I think we'll see major differences is in search. I think search will fundamentally change. And we've seen some of it, right? So to your point, people ask questions. Well, they have the one box and all the platforms now, Bing has it and Google has it, where you're like, hey, what's the weather today? And it automatically grabs your info. It says, where, where's this IP address located, you know, zip code-wise? It grabs the weather, and it's very confident in the answer, so it just shows you the answer. Well, I think that's what's so powerful about these chatbots is they'll just tell you the answer. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to really change the way it works because, again, search is not often to find a website. Really, search is to find an answer. And website's the the mechanism to go do it, but if you could skip that middle step, then we certainly would. Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm interested back back to the company uh, use of it. If you could do some type of transfer learning Mm -hmm. or at least identify a certain class of questions that could answer. For example, if you're a convenience store, like where's the nearest Seven Eleven, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, through maps, that, that could probably get that answer. I don't know if it could or not, but uh, we should try it. But so there's maybe some things that it could answer and then some things that it couldn't, like what's my bank account balance, right? It's not going to find that on the internet, um, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know, but <laughs> well, I told you to change your password. Jason, yeah, if, stop using it. It does. I've got an issue with the bank. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I look. My point is though, 
my point in the company use case is not so much generic things about the company. I think it can if you asked it something like, what is a 7-Eleven? I think it could probably tell you things like this. However, anything that's dynamic and changing is going to be problematic for these bots because the way they're trained is at one time really large language models, like one time on a huge data set, mm -hmm. a huge corpus, very expensive, takes a lot of time. Things like where's the nearest 7-Eleven? Well, when it was trained, it might have known that. But if you open new stores or close them, you're sort of at the mercy of retraining. And most of the time when you ask things like this of it today, it just says like, hey, I have a trained model. I don't have access to the latest and greatest. And it might give you an answer. It might not. It just kind of depends. I agree. And I, I think that by and large, most of those corporate chatbot use cases are not not really ideal for what it does. I think search, some of the other things you you mentioned around you know writing a thank you letter or a, a letter to uh, request a, you know a different decision with a, an insurance payment or something like that or get tax information those kind of things are are probably much much more aligned uh, the one that always comes up for us clearly is writing code mm -hmm. you know is it is this thing going to be able to write code you know can you write an app that does XYZ? We talked about that a little bit on the old podcast that, you know, my, my answer is I think it could probably, you know, help a lot like auto completion today does, but it, it's not going to be able to handle all the production issues, right. That, that most systems really have, right. You know, whether that be security or performance or those top things, those, those tend to be a little more involved in depth, not something that you find on the the code that's published on the internet. And so I, I still think there's, you know, maybe some promise there from helping developers, but I don't think it's going to replace developers. Yeah, I would say from my perspective on the code, so they had a great demo, by the way, if you haven't seen it, when they first launched GPT-2, I believe it was, maybe it was 3, I can't remember now. There's an example where they had a demo at the Microsoft Ignite conference, and they basically wrote Asteroid the game. And they just asked it to basically write code that game for them by saying, hey, I want a spaceship. I want it to bounce back and forth. In English, they described how the game worked, and then it wrote the code for it. And it worked, you know, again, in a demo kind of example, right? However, I do think that you can imagine it being sort of the future of Stack Overflow, where it sort of knows internally all of these canonical questions and patterns that people have written before. And so it becomes in that way just an updated version of search. So today what you do is say, hey, what's the algorithm for bubble sort? That's a silly example, but like what's the algorithm for bubble sort? You go to Stack Overflow. It shows you some code snippets of like, hey, here's how people have written it before. People copy paste. My guess is the future of sort of generative coding from that standpoint would be very similar like, hey, write me, I want to write a function or a class that does this. And it gives you a template that you then go in and you modify and you change. And you again, you're, you the programmer are really the director or the orchestrator of all of these little snippets of code and figuring out like, how do they fit together? How do they assemble? What are the patterns? What are the, what are the edge cases for these patterns? And then coding around sort of the bulk of the sort of commoditized elements of it. Yeah, that's what I meant by a productivity tool for developers, right? It can help you know, a lot like autocomplete does today or mm -hmm. some type of temp template method today where, you know, those exist where you can say like, create me a, you know, a class that has, you know, name, address, city, and state and auto-generate a lot of the methods there. That that all exists today and, and this may be a better interface to mm -hmm. that uh, it, with maybe 
you know, arguably better output sure. and ability to handle some things like, well, give me a bubble sort algorithm kind of thing. But again, I, I don't think it's, it's ever going to know like how to write a full application because sure. there's just too many things that, that come along. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Okay. So we have this sort of transformative case of search and maybe that manifests itself in a couple different ways. We have some iterative cases like programming, sort of generative programming, where it gives you some snippets, again, or special use cases of search in some sense. And again, some ideas around like maybe chat bots about generic questions. The one, the other one I want to talk about, and I think this one is fairly transformational. What about education? So imagine today you go to you know Google and you're like, hey, how do I solve this math problem? Well, Google is going to really struggle with that. It's going to have a hard time finding a web page that references that exact thing. Maybe you're like, how do I solve a polynomial, for example? And it could give you some generic thing. What's fascinating is I actually shoved in some math equations. There's like, hey, just solve, you know, solve for x. 3x plus 20 equals 5. And it actually walks through step by step the logic. It says, so I'll, I'll read you verbatim here. It says, to solve x in the equation, 3x plus 20 equals 5, you need to isolate the variable on one side of the equation. To do this, you can subtract 20 from both sides of the equation, and you'll get 3x equals negative 15. Then you divide both sides by of the equation by 3, and you get x equals negative 5. Therefore, the solution to the equation is x equals negative 5. So that's kind of cool, right? Like it gives you an actual step-by-step -step process in a way that I think nothing has ever really done before. Mathematica, or Mathematica had a, a product called uh, Wolfram Alpha. Wolfram, yeah. That's right. And it did something similar, which would walk you through step by step. There wasn't any language around it. And I think it's kind of powerful here is if somebody builds on top of this, maybe it gets these outputs and then enriches it in some sense. I think that could be quite powerful and, and sort of personalized. And actually, I asked it to give me multiple ways to solve the equation. And it did. It, it struggled in my very simple polynomial that I gave it, but it did actually give me multiple ways. And it it did okay when I asked it more sophisticated things like a partial differential equation. It didn't really know. I had asked an ordinary differential equation. It it got it right without really any good explanation. But I think there's an opportunity for it to really take the knowledge of the internet and apply it to the educational domain because that stuff is static. It is learnable. And um, I think that's kind of cool. I do have some issue with that educational example or other domains where there is some consequence if the answer is wrong, mm, right? Okay. Because like, let's say you didn't know how to do algebra and it gave you an answer that was the wrong answer, right? Like the only way you know it's wrong is if you already know the answer. Sure. And, and so do you, are you sure that it's going to be right? Yeah. And if there is a consequence to it being wrong, like you're, you owe more taxes or something like that. Like then, then you, I think you have to be really careful. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And this is, we've been working on these kinds of solutions for some time with some of our clients. And the first question that I always get when we talk about these is exactly that. How do you know it's right? <laughs> what do you do when it's wrong? Yeah. How do you guarantee that? Because again, you know, if you gave a product description that's inaccurate, that could be fraud potentially. And that's a real problem for you as a business risk. And so how do you deal with that, right? It's a, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, um, Sam Altman, he's the CEO of, of OpenAI. He, I think he said it really well. <laughs> and, you know, we're sort of, my point here is like, I think we're at the peak of the hype cycle. And I think he recognizes that. So he's doing some, I think, level setting or trying to in some way. And he says that chat GPT is incredibly limited. 
but good enough to create some things to create the misleading impression of greatness. And that's exactly right. Like it's gotten to the point now, this this user interface in particular has has taken a tool that is rather nuanced, pretty immature, and put it in, ha- in the hands of the average person, which I think is amazing in mm-hmm. some ways, but it's going to give them a false sense of, of hope, a false sense of impression. I think we'll get there. We'll get there, but we're not there yet. Yeah, just to put a finer point on it, like if you ask it to write a poem and that poem doesn't rhyme, okay, fine. If you ask it to calculate your dosage of your medication today and it gives you the wrong answer that could be catastrophic that's right yep and so he specifically says you know we have lots of work to do on robustness and truthfulness specifically and i think it's going to be really hard it's going to be the evolution and again in the in the hype cycle this is going to be peak from my perspective like this is a really cool sort of generation generational change in the paradigm but it's going to take a while for us to solve the really hard nuanced edge cases that are inevitable yeah, and also there's, I think there's even a, a harder class of problem, mm-hmm. right, of is this the right answer versus is there an, a right answer at all? Oh, interesting. Right? Yeah, so, so that's a, it's a really good, yeah, that's tough. So let me get my canonical example I use from that is the the airport scanners, right, that if you you can make those things very sensitive so that anything that looks even remotely dangerous alarms you. And in which case you'll stop every single person for a search, or you can make them very specific where if it, you know, notifies or if it identifies something, then that something is for sure a dangerous weapon or item. And that would be a very specific search. Well, the answer is probably not either of those things, right? Like I, I, I don't want zero false positives because that means that I probably had some true positives that I didn't identify. And I don't want a hundred percent, a whole lot of false negatives either. Right. I said that backwards, didn't I? I don't want to be, I don't want to stop everybody and I don't want to stop no one right. because nothing is a hundred percent sure it's, you know, it's dangerous. And so, the question then becomes, well, where in the middle do we tune it? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think anyone has a right answer, right? There's like, it, it, it's a essentially a policy decision. Okay. And so questions like, where should we tune the airport scanners are again, not things that are appropriate to, to ask it. Yeah, no, that's a great, great example. All right, moving on. Cobol. Cobol. <laughs> you know about this? I, I saw this article and I'm like, uh, I, I'm going to have to talk about this. So new research aims to analyze how widespread cobalt is. And this research comes up at the registers where we get the article. Um, in essence, you know, a lot is the headline. Uh, 775 to 850 billion lines of code are still in production today that are written in cobalt. Um, and it's such a problem for critical infrastructure that, in fact, the governor... <laughs> the governor of New Jersey had to appeal the citizens of New Jersey to come forward and help with the state's mainframe computers after struggling under the weight of requests from citizens. So we have critical infrastructure that's written in COBOL. We have so few developers who know this that we now have literally governors begging their population to say, hey, if you can write, if you can help, please do. What's going on here, Jason? Well, I also 
saw that that was something like 92% of businesses. Oh yeah, that's right. That's a great point here. This is not just states and infrastructure. Actually, 92% of organizations that were surveyed said that COBOL is a strategic technology for them. Yeah, and I don't know that I've ever heard COBOL and strategic technology mentioned in the same sentence before. But I, At least not it, since the 80s. Or not, yeah, the <laughs> 70s. But, but no, I think it's interesting because it, it, there is such a large existing install of it that does need to be changed. And so the question really becomes, do we rewrite it all? Mm-hmm. And, you know, rewriting 800 billion lines of code is no small effort. I mean, it's a, a lot of work to go modernize these systems. And, and, and in some cases I'd say the mainframe is maybe even the right platform for some subset of these systems. Maybe not all of them. A lot of them probably can be modernized onto the cloud and have better platforms, but there may be somewhere it's, it's the right platform. So do we go down that path or do we go down the path of, well, we have to start training people up. I do think there'll be a, I wish Kevin were here to talk about the economics of all this, but I do think there could be some market forces there. Like if you start paying enough for people to learn COBOL, a bunch of people, are bunch of people are going to learn COBOL. Right. Yeah. So, so help me understand real quick, Jason, you know, I'm obviously a little bit younger than you a couple of years and uh, I don't know COBOL. What, what was it used for? What makes it different? Is it, just give me like the basics, the quick rundown. Well, it's, you know, it was a language that went back to the 60s, maybe even 50s. I'm not sure. But definitely into the 60s. And it's a mainframe programming language. It was designed to look very much like English. Now, if you looked at it today, you wouldn't think it looked very much like English. But, you know, compared to what programs were written in, in the 60s and 70s, it looked a lot closer to English than than those languages did. And it's largely used for kind of big batch data processing for, well, that's not true. It's probably the two main use cases are for our one big batch data processing. So that would be, you know, a bank gets a, a nightly feed of every transaction that, you know, from the bank accounts that runs through and it processes them. It's, it's very good for that. Um, the mainframe in general is very good for that kind of batch workload. The other very common use case for COBOL is as the back end of CICS transaction or KIX transactions. Those are, you know, if you, when people think of the mainframe, they think of these green screens on the 3270 terminal where there's a bunch of fields and you type it in and you hit enter and it gives you, you know, you type in your driver's license at the DMV and it pulls back your information, right? That's, those are, those transactions are, are more real time kind of user interface. It, it actually works a lot like the web does. It takes, essentially takes the characters off of the screen. It it takes an 80 by 40 array of characters and sends it back to the mainframe, which looks at certain positions in that 320 bytes of characters and, and pulls out, you know, relevant things goes and looks up data online and builds a screen and sends it back a lot the way HTML, you know, and HTTP work. But the back and so that that transaction system CICS, the back end of those transactions, sort of like the back end of a web request that you might be written in Java or or, or .NET or something like that, Ruby, is written in COBOL, and the, I think those are probably the two main use cases. It, and, but it is it is a programming programming language that is you know just like any other programming language. Got it. 
So how different is it from other modern languages? So if you took somebody out of, you know, a computer science program today, choose a really good one, and you said, hey, go learn COBOL. I mean, is that like a, is that just like a quick, easy port over to learn a few new keywords or is it a, is it a paradigm shift in it, your mind? It would be a little bit of a paradigm shift because it would feel rather limiting, right? Like the mainframe in, in general is, is a rather limited environment by design. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, when things, when you start building things on PCs and off the mainframe, you have essentially you had control of the whole computer. And, you know, now, although applications tend to be, you know, many applications running on the computer, so they have to kind of play nicely, you can kind of do whatever you want where within the application. Within the mainframe, things are much more structured. Right. And you, there are patterns and ways of doing things and it's sort of like fill in the blank. Got it. Right. And so it would probably seem like a big step backwards for a lot of people and very limiting in that like, wow, I can only do these things. Mm. That's a guess. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be hard to learn. Look, we, you know, back in the day when Accenture hired people out of, out of campus, they would send them to, to St. Charles and teach them COBOL, right? In three weeks. It's not, it's not a hard language to learn, Got it. but what is, is probably harder to learn. is just the mainframe environment. Got it. Yeah. Cause it's just radically different. It's I radically guess. different. Like you don't have your own directory and where you can just stick files wherever you want. Right. There's, you get someone who's the mainframe op- because it's a big, you know, it's a big shared computer. Mm-hmm. It's a real, it's a, computer about the size of a refrigerator, a big sub zero refrigerator that thousands of people share. And so there's a lot of rules like, okay, well you can have some space, but you only get this much and it is only in this location and you can only put these type of things here and you can, you don't get to go install any tool you want, right? There's a tool for editing the files that, uh, and one and only one, and that's the one you use. And so it, it again, it, I think it would just seem a little bit anachronistic to people uh, that we're used to things today, but there's some benefit to that. And and I actually think like if you look at what a lot of the cloud providers are doing today, they're they're essentially working their way back into the mainframe. So like take something like AWS Lambda, their, their serverless functions within AWS. Like well, that's the same. Like create me a web app make some API calls to a database. Like, well, that's a very templated thing where I'm only going to go fill in the blanks for what the Lambda functions do. You know, that's not far from what, what it looks like to, to work uh, in that kind of mainframe environment. Again, for those kind of request response use cases, I don't know that the, that the mainframe is the right, the right platform, but for big number crunching things for big batch processing, you know, it might be a good use case, but, but even looking to migrate off. And this is where I think that the real challenge is going to be. What if, if you say, well, no one's going to go learn that or we can train people up, but what we really need to do is get stuff off and modernize it. That's where I think the big challenge is because moving these things off is not simple, right? It's not just reproduce what is here in one language on this platform in another language, right? That's a, and, and that approach has been tried, but you generally don't get any value now you know what what's the difference you spent all of this money and you have exactly the same experience and outcome on the other side right just written in a different language that's not a really good use of of money what you really need to do is is rethink is there a different way to solve the problem 
so people who understand like new modern technologies and how to solve problems with them, what they generally don't understand is cobalt. And there's not a lot of people to explain to them what the existing system does. Mm-hmm. Right. And so having someone that can go in and say, well, this is what this system does. And this is how we would do it with more modern technologies. Great. Except nobody knows the first thing. Got it. So, so really the, the challenge, I guess, in retraining everybody, retooling everybody is actually not so much the language per se, but understanding how to parse through the 800 million lines of code in essence and like understand like what is this really doing and why would we choose to do that? Because the environment in which you're doing that work is actually pretty different. Mm-hmm. And I'm at billion, by the way, not million, but 800 yeah. billion. Interesting. So the environment's different. So there, that's the challenge in I think training people up and the challenge in modernizing is that you need, you still need people trained up in it to modernize, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So either way you have to have somebody, the question is, do you want to have somebody for one generation or for two? Any intuition there about, is the cloud good enough now that there are still use cases that are actually better for the mainframe in your mind? Uh, That's a really good question. I think most things can be handled in the cloud. Got it. Um, There there may be just like anything in in the bell curve there may be like a the very far right quartile of size and complexity that no uh, you'd still want the mainframe to do but think about you know very very large banks or insurance companies or airlines i mean a lot of people have tried to move some of the airline pricing logic off the mainframe and generally not with a lot of success right just because there are so many there are so many billions of permutations and it's so much mm. you know just raw data crunching right that it it does so yeah, but I for i would say for it's probably the 80 20 rule for 80 percent of the use cases the cloud is going to be more than enough and i think those will you know those platforms will continue to to evolve um it's a really interesting question i guess is you know inevitably we we end up recurring so much tech debt that you kind of get stuck right and that's kind of where that that sounds like that's where some organizations, well, apparently a lot, given this percentage of strategic technology, a lot of organizations are finding themselves at this moment. Yeah, and back back to the understanding what you have, like that is truly the hardest part. Like, so we have a client, uh, I won't mention them. They rely a lot on the mainframe, and they are they have done an, a terrific job of moving some things off, and uh, those things that they have moved off and leveraged new, newer technologies have been very, very successful. But they still have, but that represents probably 20%. They still have 80% of the stuff. They're like, well, we want to move this other stuff off. But we don't know what all is there and what it connects to. And if we move this piece off, does that break something else? And just like that dependency map of that dependency map of, of all the, the pieces and and what can be moved uh, or what would break if something else were moved, that is a really hard problem. Because again, you have to have some understanding, go be able to go look through the platform and understand like, well, what does it use, right? And, and again, there's not a lot of people that, that really can even navigate their way around the mainframe to determine that. And so we actually have built some tools um, this is not a shameless Cordero plug, but we, we built some tools that were very specific to that uh, that company that were able to go through and build 
you know, we essentially build a, a graph database that, that people could query and say, well, if we, we want to move this, what does it connect to and, and what impact will that have? And that, that kind of uh, discovery is really important to understand what you can move off and in what order and then what the impacts of that would be. Yeah, just the interconnectedness of all of that does make it right. rather difficult. And to your point, if you don't have people internally who understand this to begin with, my assumption is that there have continued to be enhancements made to these systems ever since they were originally created. And as knowledge of how the systems actually work at a fundamental level has decreased, my intuition is that those enhancements have become more and more spaghetti code, if you will, mm -hmm. without really understanding truly the deep level what's working here in the same way that any new junior developer inevitably makes code that's not particularly elegant. It works, but then when you want to detangle that, it's a lot more work to pull it back out. Nobody is spending a lot of time doing a lot of refactoring to make the mainframe applications look pretty. If they do need to change, it's generally like, let's do as minimal work on that as possible and like whatever quick and dirty shortcut we can make uh, just because we don't want to throw a lot of money onto it. Yeah. And this goes back to that point of you end up getting kind of stuck then, right? Right. Um, any, any parting thoughts, closing thoughts about like, is there a secret sauce here of how do you get out of this, this sort of hole that you keep digging? Cause every time you do it incrementally, you just get deeper and deeper and more and more stuck. In no, no silver bullet, but a lot of snake oil. Um, I would say there's a lot of people that come and try to sell you like some emulator or some translator or whatever that says like, Oh, this will fix all your mainframe problems, right? It'll translate everything over to new platform or it'll let you run the COBOL changes and, you know, COBOL apps unchanged on the cloud. I'd, I'd be very, very wary of those things unless you have fairly, you know, simple, minimal, uh, mainframe implementations. I've never really seen those things work. It is really just a very hard, you know, it's like crawling under your house to trace all the plumbing and, and it is like it do the do the analysis to figure out what connects to what and what the dependencies are and then try to break reasonable you know reasonably small sized chunks of that off that don't have a lot of then you know uh break a lot of those dependencies and and do what is the right for, thing for those and then repeat it's a it's a really long slow process got it well, and I guess the the last thing that I heard is go learn Cobalt if you're a new young developer. <laughs> right. I think you could probably name your prize for the state of New Jersey. <laughs> so so that leads me to the third topic I want to talk about today, um, freelance work. So Upwork just published a new study. They said that freelance contributed $1.35 to the U.S. economy in 2022. That's up $50 billion from the previous year. The share of professionals freelancing, so this is people with college educations, post-doctoral, I mean doctoral degrees, for example, up to 60 million Americans. That's 39% now. So 39% of working professionals apparently freelance to some degree. And over half of those freelancers provided actual knowledge service. So 51% of all freelancers or nearly 31 million professionals provided knowledge services such as computer programming, marketing, IT, and business consulting in 2022. Staggering to me, frankly. The particularly interesting thing about it 
is, of course, COVID pushed everybody to, to remote work. We had this whole quiet everything, you know, quitting everything, the great resignation, quiet quitting, all of these things happening over the past year or two years. We've heard stories and seen stories on TikTok and other sort of social platforms of people working multiple jobs. Is that what's going on here from your perspective? Are people just like picking up these things nights and weekends, taking their extra free time, taking their commute and, and just effectively monetizing it in some way? Or do you think it's more that people are, want to break away from the nine to five, have quit their corporate jobs and are now doing this full time? Any intuition about what's going on here? I, I would imagine it's some of both. No, uh, I don't know for sure. There probably are, are some folks in that list that are you know doing side work. I mean, I, I think it could be side work, right? For extra cash, it could be the let's try to work two jobs and game the system, that kind of thing. But I, I do think there. Probably the biggest thing I think is this kind of shift more towards gig economy, you know, Uber, whatever it's, well, I can, you know, go be a ski bum for a week and then I can pick up a programming job for two weeks and pay the bills. Or I can go surf on the beach for a couple of weeks and then pick up a, a, a gig. And so less about building a career and more about like, how do I use my skills to do some of these you know, gig, gig work, uh, essentially, I think that's probably the biggest part. Again, I don't have any, any hard data on that, but that would be my guess. Yeah. And do you, is that problematic from your experience of people who just sort of hop from thing to thing, work on it is, is sort of these independent freelance contractors, are there downsides to that from a personal professional development standpoint, or is it all upside? It's a good question. I think in, in some ways it can be limiting to the individual in that you're not really establishing, you know, if you think about your career over the long term, a lot of it depends on personal relationship. Like I've worked with a lot of people in the last 30 years that I've worked with multiple times because people work with people they trust and they know that will do a good job. And if you're somewhat of a nameless, faceless person, you know, behind an email address, Yes, if I need something quick, maybe that's fine. But if I have something really significant, am I really going to to do that? And then do your options get lim more and more relatively more limited and limited as you go in your career because you don't have these you know deeper relationships? I think that's limiting to the individual. I think it is limiting to the individual in that you don't learn best practices and things from others. I I, I work with you know you a lot and learn all kinds of things from you on uh, different projects and with with many others here at Cradera and I think you can you know get somewhat into a echo chamber uh with yourself of one, uh, of one yeah around or or maybe a couple other people you work with but you're not really getting that kind of new ideas diverse ideas you're you're kind of stuck doing things the way you always have done them yeah now maybe those people are you know, catching up with new patterns and practices outside, you know, the, the flip side of that argument was, well, you see a lot of different implementations or a lot of different companies and a lot of things you see what all the things that work and what doesn't work. And you can learn from that. I think that is also true. Right. And so how much of a, a balance is that versus, versus the uh, learning from other great people? I don't know. So that's my thought from the individual perspective, from the client or customer perspective, the concern I would have 
is is really around is that person doing just enough to get paid yeah and is there any you know kind of uh you know we're in this together pride of ownership or we believe in this company you know when you build a startup people believe in it and they put blood sweat and tears into that startup and they spend up and they stay up late at night and refactor code because that's their baby right and do you get that same level from people who are essentially gig workers? I, I tend to doubt it. I'm sure some do. I'm sure some people out there, just like anything, there are probably some who really do put everything into it. But in general, if you think about it from a game theory standpoint, it's a one and done. You're going to play the game one time with this, with this individual, this freelancer and, and that's it. It's all you're really committing to. And so there's not a huge incentive to make sure the first time goes really well for the repeat game, if you will. Now, again, some freelance workers, no doubt, have the intention of continuing the new contracts and in the same way, effectively become consultants. But when I think about freelance in particular, especially when it comes from, you know, Upwork as, as an example here, it's really much more of the click and buy a service one time kind of mentality. And I think that's that's tricky. I think it's yeah. just hard. I think there's also some risk there around those single time workers understanding your domain sure, and the complexity. Now, maybe you've got a lot of experience in the restaurant industry and you're doing this and you know all the restaurant problems, but you know, it, it does take a little bit of time. So if you're working on a problem, it does take a little bit of time to understand all the nuance of that domain. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, from a business standpoint, I'd probably only hire the things that were relatively commoditized. Mm-hmm. So if I have a standard website, it's not that important to my business. I'm an e-com business. I was sure I might go to Fiverr or Upwork or one of these websites where you can just kind of hire an independent freelancer and be like, ready, go. Because I know it's pretty generic. It's commoditized. They've probably done it a million times. They can be faster with those, you know, tools than I would ever be. If it's a differentiator, I'd probably not use those services in this case. Which I think leads to the other thing, I think from an individual standpoint, my intuition, I don't know this for a fact, of course, but my intuition is that the types of work they get are therefore the relatively basic things that they're going to do time and time again. So they're going to be asked to configure Google Analytics for somebody. They're going to be asked to set up a web page, build it in WordPress. They're going to be asked to make a you know, promo video or whatever, right? And I think that those things are generically fine for a small company because it's not going to be their big differentiator. The other thing I would say is from a freelancer perspective, and it sounds a lot at Uber, the earnings look really good, right? And in fact, from the survey, they talked about this freelancers, their satisfaction with earnings was significantly higher than those who are non-freelancers. And I think there's a risk here in how savvy the analysis actually is. So my favorite is that, you know, Uber, of course, in most states at this point, they'll have freelancers, they're contractors. They're, they don't work for Uber. They're just independent contractors that Uber pays to fulfill the service of delivering person point A to point B. And when you look at the numbers, Dara said this recently in the earnings call that the average, the median earnings were at or above $40 an hour in several U.S. cities. And you're like, wow, are you kidding me that somebody can just drive people around and make $40 an hour? It sounds pretty good, almost too good to be true. $80,000 a year, that's significantly more than the median income in the U.S. Well, that's true, and I think the numbers are accurate. Like, this team is not making this stuff up. It's real. But you have to factor in all of the other costs associated with this. So how much do you spend on healthcare? If you work for a company, they're going to pay for it, or at least they're going to subsidize it more than likely. 
you have to factor in the cost of actually running the business. So in this case of Uber, you have to factor in the car, the insurance, the wear and tear, the tires, the gas, all of these things come into that too. And so when you look at the actual realized earnings, typically you don't do better than you would inside of a company, even though on the surface it looks significantly better. And so I think for those who are actually doing this as a full-time thing, their freelance workers is their primary, maybe only source of income, I think those things are often neglected in the analysis. Now, no doubt you get benefits from it, but I think just, I think they're neglected. And for those who are doing it as a side hustle, like, then those things are already paid for by the company. <laughs> and so, of course, they don't need them. It's just pure profit for them in that sense. And that's great for them. But I don't know how long, especially if we go to, if we, and I know we disagree with this a little bit, but if we go into a tightening economy, I don't know how long you can get away with doing maybe less than full effort at your normal job. The idea of this quiet quitting or just doing the men 40 hour kind of work. My guess is that we'll have to contract in terms of labor, and that means that whoever's willing to put in 41 hours or 42 hours can look marginally better than somebody who puts in 38 or 39 or even 40 hours a week. So I think that might change, but we'll see. I want to go back to one thing you just said because it sparked a thought, which is the, well, for commodity things, right? putting Google Analytics tags on, that's fine. I, I agree. But you know, do you want things that are differentiating? The other thing that, that made me think about was, well, things that have like security, privacy, or data aspects, mm. right? Because are you going to give someone access to all your production data, right? Or in this case, like even, even with the Google Analytics, like the keys, right, to uh, make changes, you know, the credentials to make changes to your website. Sure. I think, I think companies that are going to hire those freelancers need to get much tighter control around security, privacy, data access, and essentially provide a platform for those people to come work on so that they don't le then leave three months later with the keys to the kingdom. I mean, if you were going to do that and you had 50 or 60 of them, like, how often would you need to change the password, right? So I do think that is a real constraint on on these companies that are hiring that, that they need to make sure to think through that before they just turn over uh, access to all their production systems to these contractors. Yeah, no, I think it's a really good, a really good point. And if you think about people who typically hire from these kinds of platforms, they're often a little bit smaller in the size. They're, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure that if you went to, in fact, I'll do it right now. Yeah, Upwork, they of course have, you know, Microsoft and Airbnb and Bissell and as sort of their clients that use this platform. But my guess is really. Uh, those are pretty niche things, and the majority of their customers are actually small, medium businesses. And as a result, those SMBs rarely have the level of savvy and sophistication internally to have the controls that you just talked about. And so we've seen this move towards like zero trust in the cloud, and all people are moving towards it. My guess is that there's a real risk for most people who hire this exactly right. It's a great, it's a great observation. Well, anyway, it's been fun, Jason. Thank you for those three today. Um, I do think a lot's changing in the world, lots happening, no doubt. We're going to see how this economy plays out, of course. The latest CPI print looked, uh, looked really positive. So maybe I'll be wrong in the end. Maybe you'll be right. We'll see. Uh, well, we'll both be proven right and both be proven wrong over a large enough time frame. <laughs> I like that. That's exactly right. So we'll see what which way it comes up this time. For those of you who would like to learn more, please visit the Insights page at codera.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Vincent.